Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished these temptings, he departed from him until a more opportune time. The good news of our Lord Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's the first Sunday of Lent, and I see it's packed, so everyone's excited about Lent, right? Um, <laughs> uh, last weekend, uh, we weren't here. Kristen and I took a little trip to Death Valley, actually. I was uh, doing this event out there, but... Um, I'd never been there before, and it's <laughs> not. I don't want to. Anyways, I was in a lot of. I was in a lot of pain afterwards. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah. But I. Uh, I'd never been to Death Valley before, and I always imagined it like the Roadrunner cartoons, just like a flat, dry place, maybe a cactus here and there. But um, it is a cathedral. It is like a dry paradise of just geographical features and various terrains. If you've never been there, you definitely should check it out. Those of you that have been there know. Um, it's as diverse and beautiful as it is just desolate, too. Um, and we only, really only had time for the highlights because of said event and me just not wanting to do anything the rest of the day. <laughs> um, so we hit the highlights. We went to Badwater Basin, the lowest point in North America, negative uh, 282 feet below sea level. Uh, we went to Zabriskie Point, where the tectonic plates have all mashed together, and it looks the hillside looks like more wrinkled than an octogenarian. It just is like <laughs> crazy looking. And then uh, we went to Devil's Golf Course, which is actually like looks exactly like what it sounds like. It's all these salt flat spikes that have twisted up into balls, and so if you tried to walk across it, it would just shred your shoes to death. Um, and then Mesquite Dunes, which we only really drove by it, but I love sprawling sand dunes and just these, you know, huge hills of just pure yellow sand just in the middle of what you would consider normal California terrain of just the ragged weeds and stuff. Um, but the highlight for me and for Kristen, I think, was the Artist Drive, uh, which is this nine-mile loop that takes you through these rock formations that's known as the Artist Palette. And... Um, it's just this splattering of all these different colors, and um, 
It's all made from all these different elements like iron and aluminum and magnesium and titanium, etc. Just like all ground together in this one place. And based on the time of day, the way the clouds are, the way the light is, and the amount of rainfall that year, it looks different every time you go there. At least according to the little plaque at the viewpoint. So it said, um, and it also said that the way this happened and the way all these crazy things came together to make this just bloom out of rocks was a series of ancient volcanic eruptions uh, that chemically altered the minerals and created this astonishing site. And for me, you know, we talked about it while we were there and just kind of the takeaway was just that God creates eternal beauty out of momentary volcanic wastelands. And for me, I think Lent is our chance to revisit the wasteland, to go into the wilderness, as we heard a lot through, through song and, and poetry, and um, just to go into that place of want, that place of longing where, you know, like empty buckets, we are craving water to fall from the sky. It's a place of pain and a place of, as we see in today's scripture, a place of temptation and a place of deliverance. And uh, the scriptures we've read today for our contemplation uh, show us and reveal to us that the pain of temptation in the world gives rise to the limitless provision of God. And so we go with Jesus into the wilderness. And uh, I want us to just consider this passage from Luke, uh, Luke 4, the temptation of Christ. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Jesus proclaims the law uh, to the devil, and the devil just stands there and, and lies to Jesus and just throws shade at him, basically. And Jesus' proclamation over and over, as it is written. And even when the devil tries to take that back from him, as it is said, as it is written, is the proclamation of faith proclamation of values and a proclamation of just the limitless care and provision of God. And the focus of this, you know, this is the headline in your Bible is probably the temptation of Christ. The focus of this passage is really on the pain of temptation as it reveals God's resources. Jesus is pointing directly to God's resources that he provides in the middle of that temptation. And uh, the passage lands between Jesus getting baptized and Jesus going out and proclaiming the kingdom. And this in-between space that Jesus is in, it's a profound call that he gets when the dove comes down and says, you're the son of God. And he's ready to go out and kind of do that. There's a question in this time in the wilderness. The question is, how do I live out the kingdom? And I think in many ways, Jesus' struggle, Jesus' temptation that he encounters in various ways, and you know, there's a lot of different commentaries and ways to approach this passage. It's a return to the Garden of Eden and the first temptation. It's um, the proclamation of John kind of summar summarizing what it means to be a human, uh, the temptation of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, etc., um, but simply, simply expounded, the temptation of Christ, I think by extension, the temptation of us, reveals that challenge to our values. And the confrontation of Jesus' temptation is the confrontation of the ordinary 
and traditional and accepted ways of living out an earthly kingdom. The earthly and faulty ways. Jesus' temptation and the things that Satan throws at him are power, wealth, influence, consumption, personal appetites, greed. He steps into a world in the wilderness of confronting those things. And he answers out of this religious and cultural heritage of faith. and says, no, it is written. It has been put down to go against those things. And I think we would almost be lucky if they were so clearly pronounced in our daily life. Uh, I think our temptations for those things, for power, wealth, influence, they're a lot more subtle. They're a lot more ingrained in us to kind of go along with the flow than being sent out from everything and being in a barren place and being directly told by someone you know is bad to do those things. And Jesus makes it so clear that the focus of enduring temptation is to, to trust God, to immerse yourself in God. And... Jesus gives rise to those values that halt temptation. He proclaims self-giving, humility, servanthood, and self-control. And for us as a community, I think a community of, of trust that's built around those values gives us refuge in a world that disdains those things, that disdains the lowly. And we come to the season of Lent with these powerful traditions. Uh, you know, a lot of times we reduce it to giving up chocolate or giving up something else. Um, but the observance of Lent consists of three things, and really four. Uh, fasting, giving, praying, and I would add contemplating. And Jesus makes plain that those inactions and those actions are righteous convictions of Scripture to step into something that is written and that really, I think, casts a light on our faith in a Savior. And it is the overflow of that humble Christ, that brokenness in the wilderness, uh, in which we stand victorious in Christ. And the pain of temptation, the pain of enduring that temptation, Nikki, I was blown away by your poem, is the pain of an overcomer, of the pain of someone that steps into Christ and Christ overcomes. And I think when we encounter these temptations in the world, these darknesses, it really is a reminder of our call to be a light in the world. I think above all, temptation and the adversary that Jesus encounters shows us what Psalm 91 echoes our call to worship is that it is the refugee that finds shelter in God. And uh, in the passage in Romans we read, uh, Romans 10, Paul really takes up the idea of faith. He's talking about faith. Let me read it again. He says, the word of faith is near you on your lips and in your heart. And so confess with your lips with Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is raised from the dead. You will be saved. 
And uh, the provision of that powerful salvation is what our spiritual journey is all about, is constantly looking to God as the one who has rescued and the one who will rescue us. And that just that word alone, faith, I think I would say that when Jesus says it is written, that is that connection to faith, and that we our faith is in something firm and that doesn't change. And the word, you know, when we talk about believing or faith, the, the Greek word for faith is just encompasses everything, confidence, assurance, hope, truth, belief, and trust. It is so much more than just acknowledging a concept, but it is plunging your value, plunging your identity into that concept. And this faith that Paul sets out for us in Romans stands like a rule of life. Um, it's a path of faith that leads us with Christ into the wilderness. It's faith that is the beginning of life. And under the pain of temptation, faith reveals to us the glory of the God who saves. And Paul reminds us, you know, salvation is for all. It is this overwhelming provision of God that doesn't discriminate. It doesn't change with who we are, who we think we are, who somebody else is, or who we think someone else is. This faith, this discipleship, this shelter in which we dwell in God, it's a space for us to live and be and, and figure out all the hard stuff. And Lent is one of those spaces. Lent is one of those times where we can say, you know, I don't have it all figured out. What do I need to give up? What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? What is my faith? Act what is this journey of faith actually leading me towards? It's a, a reminder to, to step back into that journey Unfortunately, the first step is the hardest step. Um, but the space of temptation always brings us back to God's marvelous grace and His provision that we may overcome with Christ in the wilderness. And that the call to faith is one in which we say, one who believes in their heart is justified and one who confesses with their mouth is saved. For no one who believes in him will be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when we look at God's provision, I also want to just talk about our, our offering passage, Deuteronomy. It represents this call to give. Um, again, you know, we, it's easy to think of Lent as a time of giving up, but it's also a time to give forth in the absence of giving up. Uh, it's a time to look around us and say, what has God given us that we can offer? And um, I especially love just verses 8 and 9, where it says, The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Because that's verse, eight, verse 8 and verse 9, Lent and our time on earth is really in between those two verses. We're somewhere in between Canaan and Egypt. God's deliverance and God's reward 
is all about, well, it's all about generosity. It's all about what can we extend forth out of our blessings. Um, this passage in Deuteronomy reminds us that redemption is rooted in God's faithfulness to his own word and that he proclaims justice for the oppressed, shelter for the homeless, grace and love for the marginalized. And we are called to weather this storm of temptation and uncertainty and doubt and emerge as people who celebrate not abundance itself, but a God who creates and establishes all abundance. And we honor God who gives relentlessly, even giving his very son on our behalf by being a generous people. And we see this idea that God shepherds the weak, the needy, the broken, each of us counted among them, and then he leads and disciples the broken and the needy to imitate him, to follow him as one who shepherds, to draw close to him through the spirit of generosity. I think that one of the temptations of the wilderness, the pain and the harshness of our neediness, is that we contemplate the act of giving up certain things because the temptation is to withhold what we have. The temptation is to guard and to store up for ourselves earthly treasures. But God wants to forever marry the needy who have received with the needy who are still in need. And the cure for temptation is of withhold, to withhold is to give. And we are called to imitate God in these things, uh, not just out of our material resources, but of, our, of ourselves, of who God has made us to be. And when we prosper today, we're called as God's people to give thanks for what went before us and to give generously to what comes after us. To do this, we step into an awareness of this Lent season, an awareness of God in our midst. And just to tie everything together, you know, we opened this morning with Psalm 91. We heard Psalm 91 read twice, actually. It was in the call to worship, and it was in the mouth of the devil. And there is ample room, I think, for misunderstanding and deceiving until we press into what God means in Psalm 91, until we press into the truth of it. And there's actually a tradition uh, that remembers Psalm 91 in the military as the soldier's psalm. Uh, there's a legend from World War I that the 91st Infantry Division supposedly adopted the Psalm 91 as their kind of thing. Uh, you know, they were said to have had a commander that was a really strong Christian, and he said, everyone needs to memorize this psalm. And then, miraculously, they didn't sustain a casualty uh, the rest of the war, supposedly. That's not true. Um, but that's one of those things. And I have uh, on my desk in my uh, unit, I have a stack of books called The Soldier's Psalm, Psalm 91. And I, I can hand them out to guys and they'll read it. And it's a way to encourage people with scripture, but it's, it's kind of wrong too. So it's a struggle, you know? Because um, as brilliant as God's word and promises are in this psalm, it is just such a short-sighted view of that beauty to say, well, maybe God will protect me from getting shot or something like that, you know? 
Psalm 91 is a hymn of thanksgiving in light of a previous deliverance. The psalmist invokes many different names of God. He says, calls him Elyon, the Most High, Shaddai, the Almighty, Elohim, God, Yahweh, Lord. The psalmist is almost searching. He's almost just like a painter, just splattering, just trying to get a word or a thought or a way to narrate the impossible character of a God who has saved him, who has delivered him. And he does this just by stating what the Lord provides and how the Lord is provided. Um, The psalm does not promise that we will be unscathed in life. If you just make a cursory reading of it, it kind of sounds like it. Psalm 91 We read the first two verses. It goes on and says, No evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so you will not dash your feet against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. And I think this doesn't promise that we're going to be unscathed in life. It's written by someone that has already been scathed. It's written by someone that's already suffered, someone that's already been surrounded by snakes and lions, someone that's already felt the wounds of this world and who has clung to those promises of faith and has come out the other side. When Satan throws this verse to Jesus, he is denying suffering. He's trying to deny pain, of which Jesus is destined to experience. And in many ways, I think one of our temptations, not just to withhold, but to participate in that denial. So often we get caught up in this problem of pain, and we either doubt God or doubt our own experiences or we try to deny or avoid suffering or just expect a painless happy ending. But this psalm presents suffering. It says, here is a world of suffering in which God delivers us. Whether in the temptations and pain of the world or in deliverance or in suffering, any way you slice it, God provides. We still are in the shadow of the Almighty. We still dwell in the shelter of God. And as we enter into the wilderness for these 40 days of Lent, we may enter into this 40-day wilderness of remembering. Uh, Remembering God's word, remembering God's provision, that the pain is real. The pain in which God meets us and saves us and calls us and leads us to others. And uh, a lot of scripture, jumping around a little bit more than I kind of wanted to, but a lot to absorb. And one thing we want to do is just pivot to a time of conversation, uh, a time to talk back and hopefully unpack the questions and the challenges that come with this morning's contemplation. And um, just one more thing. Oh, wait, go back. Yes. One more thing. I just thought this was appropriate, Jeff. Jeff and I always like to bring a a happy quote at the end. Um, (laughs) But just to consider again the idea of what is our response? What what do we do when we're confronted with this world of pain and suffering and Lent? 
It is a call not just to withhold, but to give, to present something else, to be a light in the midst of darkness. And so just some questions for you to kind of prompt the conversation. These are not the best questions. These are just the ones I wrote down. So if you have other questions or other thoughts that aren't related directly to this part, but came up in the talk, please, please present them. Um, do we find places to admit that we are famished and overwhelmed in the wilderness? Do we find provision in the power of God who does not discriminate? How do we consider our salvation in the midst of temptation? How do we live abundantly when we don't have abundance? What is our practice for living between Canaan and Egypt? Do we really cry out to God or take refuge in him? What do we do with Psalm 91 in the midst of a dangerous and anxious world? And then what questions do we take with us from here? Not necessarily give me the right answer, but how do we consider this? How does this press us on in our, our journey? What are your thoughts?